This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is David. I'm on staff here at Highway. It's good to be with all of you. It's especially good to share air conditioning uh, with all of you. I confess, this week I'm from Texas, and when you're from Texas, you're used to the heat, but heat comes with air conditioning, and we don't have that much here. So I found myself this week wishing that I was that box of baking soda that you put in the freezer at times, which is odd on many levels, one of which being that we don't even have a box of baking soda in our freezer. Um, Yes, Uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, today, we're about halfway through a series on the book of Galatians. If you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, you'll find Galatians near the end, sandwiched in between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. For those of you who, like me, keep your Bible on your phone or your tablet, uh, open up your favorite app and just simply click the word Galatians, and that will get you where you need to go. Some helpful things uh, for you as we get started today, just as a reminder, refresher for what we've done uh, the last couple weeks. Um, The uh, book of Galatians was actually a letter Uh, written to a specific church in a specific place in a specific time in history, and its intended purpose was to be read aloud to that entire church congregation. It was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Galatia, which is a Roman province, which means that the majority of those in attendance would have likely been more familiar with Roman culture than with Jewish culture. The book reads like a great case study, starting with a story or an experience and then moving towards a teaching point. And in the first two chapters, we see our inciting incident. Paul raises concerns, to put it mildly, about a disagreement that he had with Peter, a fellow apostle, centered around who you could share a meal with. Because you see, the Christian community was divided at the time between those of Jewish nationality who professed faith in Jesus and those of non-Jewish descent or Gentiles who also professed faith in Jesus. And there was a group of Jewish believers, some of the original disciples among them, who are advocating that in order to become fully Christian, in order to have a fully restored relationship with God, that you needed to have faith in Jesus and become ceremonially and culturally Jewish. In the, in the, in the scholarly world, we call them Judaizers. This meant observing and adhering to the Old Testament law as well as for men, uh, the act of circumcision in adulthood For them, for the Judaizers, this was an issue of who was acceptable and who was not. Who was clean and who was unclean. Who would inherit the promise of God through Abraham and who would not. And we see in the first two chapters that Peter joins with Paul for a time. And as he does, he sits down and he shares meals with Gentile believers. But when members of this Judaizing group show up, he stops. Paul calls him out. 
And this is significant because Peter had experienced a vision that we see chronicled in Acts 10, where God told him not to call unclean, whether food or people, what he had made clean. In Christ, old lines of division were gone. Peter lived this out by sharing a meal with Gentile believers who under the law could have been seen as unclean. That is until the Judaizers show up. In their eyes, this was socially unacceptable to do. And Peter chooses to maintain his reputation and identity with them rather than to continue to be faithful in what he knows is the new way to live. And in a sense, he chooses an old, restrictive system. And his position of influence within that system over the freedom in Christ to eat with whomever he wants. And so Paul uses this story, this experience, to open his letter to this church as a case study to build an argument about just what, in fact, the gospel is. And this is particularly timely because within this church in Galatia, uh, this teaching that cultural conversion to Judaism was necessary to complete the redemptive work of Christ on the cross was starting to take root. And so you had a divided church with Gentile believers who had culturally and ceremonially converted to Judaism who were living under the law, utilizing this additional piece of their identity to position themselves as more than everyone else. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been hearing about how our restored relationship with God doesn't come through our own moral or religious effort, but rather believing into and identifying with Jesus. It's faith in what God has done for us and not the works of our hands that justifies us or brings us into right standing with God. And because it's based on faith alone, restored relationship with God is available to all people, regardless of their ethnic or cultural heritage. Last week, we looked with particular emphasis on what Paul has to say about the purpose and function of the Old Testament law, the religious structure given to the Israelites as they were first being formed into a nation in light of the fact that Christ has come. This is particularly important because this was at the center of the conflict. Did the new Gentile believers in Galatia have to convert to Judaism in order to become fully Christian? Paul says, absolutely not. God's promise came to Abraham before the law was given and the law is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The law has no power to save, no power to redeem, no power to restore, but only served to point to sin and brokenness, to reveal in fullness who God is and ultimately lead to faith in him alone. It was not to be forgotten, but it was no longer the metric, the dividing line for who was a part of the family of faith and who was not. And as we transition to looking at the passage, there's something uh, that's worth mentioning. Something interesting has happened with uh, the translation here, uh, and it carries a lot of significance because it really influences the way that we look and see uh, the text. There's been a great amount of thought 
uh, in uh, the past couple decades about how to be culturally sensitive uh, when translating the scriptures from their original language. And the NIV, which we use here on Sundays, uh, is a part of those kind of more recent translations. And so in Galatians, in the NIV, the Greek word for male son has at times been translated to child or in plural children in an attempt to help everyone be able to identify with what's being said and to speak to the all-encompassing love of God. But in doing so, we missed something incredibly important that was rooted in the culture of the day. In Roman culture, lineage and power and possession and status was handed down in families to the eldest son. And so the use of the word son here in these passages is not a reference to masculinity. It's a reference to status as an heir. And in this way, the way we see this word used in the following verses would have been revolutionary. The end of chapter 3 serves as the exclamation point to Paul's argument here. As Lisa pointed out this week, as our team was talking through this passage, Paul is likely red-faced and shouting by this point, or whatever the writer version of that is. You know, pen in the parchment, handwriting getting bigger and sloppier as it goes along. You could think of it as the first century version of the all caps text message or email. <laughs> Let's pick things up in Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. Listen for how many times Paul uses the word faith. Feel his critique of the emerging division. Read with me. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In this passage, Paul moves past the question of following the law to the deeper underlying issue. You see the conversation about which aspects of the law did you need to follow in order to be seen as Christian was really a conversation about how first century Christians defined themselves, where they drew their identity from who belonged and why, and who did not. Let's take a look back at verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul's language here in verse 26 is about as clear as you can get. In Christ Jesus, you are all, hear it again, all, children, sons, heirs of God through faith. He also does something interesting with his choice of words in verse 27. When young men came of age in Roman culture, their fathers would give them a robe signifying their status as a fully mature heir. 
It was a symbol to their community of their status and their inheritance. And it is this cultural practice that Paul's referencing when he says, clothe yourselves in Christ. It's something that would have been immediately identifiable by his audience. It's also something that would have likely resonated at a very deep level for many of those in the room for whom status and inheritance would have been impossible. Let's continue on to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is doing something profound here. He's connecting the removal of the barrier between us and God with the removal of the barriers between us and each other. He is elevating the level of what it means to live in community in light of the gospel. Why did Paul pick these three areas, race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and gender? They were the most common dividing lines within the community of the day. In fact, there was a daily blessing in first century Jewish culture. Something said on a regular interval to remind and recenter the Jewish men of the time on what God had done for them since the sarcasm in the air quotes. Let's take a look at this blessing. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me ignorant or a slave. And blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. It's hard to hear. Instead of in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. It was, thank you, God, for not making me like them. See, it's this line of thought that Paul directly addresses here in verse 28, because you see there was this pervasive classification system of peoples happening. And if you fit all the right boxes, then you found yourself in a position of influence, in a position of power, but... On the contrary, if you found yourself on the wrong side of the equation, many times through no fault of your own, you had no voice, and at times could be seen as even less than human. God was to be thanked that you were not a slave. God was to be thanked that you were not a woman. Well, I wish this was a first century phenomenon, something isolated to an ancient time. It's not. And while in our culture, and dare I say, in our churches, it may look more subtle and nuanced, one doesn't have to look too far down the Facebook feed, too far into the election news, too much into the parenting blogs to see that we're still drawing lines, that we are creating categories, that we are filling boxes with the people around us. Because you see, there's something interesting that happens when our very human need to make sense of the world around us intersects with our very human need to belong. 
like the Galatian Christians still trying to justify themselves by the law, we begin to define ourselves or find identity and therefore a sense of belonging in things that were never meant to serve that purpose. And like Peter separating himself from Gentiles during a meal, these things only serve to move us further away from each other, further away from the life of freedom that comes through faith in Christ. There's two ways that this usually works itself out. One way is that we begin to surround ourselves with people who are like us, people who may look like us, people who may have the same interests as us, people who may have the same kind of jobs that we do, send their kids to the same kind of schools that we do, vacation in the same kind of places that we do. And the thought here, the logic here, is that we all belong because we're all the same. But hear this, the problem in finding identity and surrounding ourselves with people who are like us is that by its very nature, it's exclusive. And, by the way, it's a dangerous slope. When we find our identity in being surrounded by people who are similar to us, we open ourselves up to the ever-so-subtle process of losing ourselves in order to make sure that we stay similar to those that we are around. Like the Gentile Christians influenced by the Judaizers, it can lead us to thinking that we need to become someone that we're not in order to find a place to belong. And listen, the madness of this is that it happens all the time and causes division because people are pretending to be someone that they're not in order to fit a certain type of person they think they need to be in order to be accepted. Here's what's heartbreaking. We can exclude people not because they're not like us, but because they're not like the person that we're pretending to be. Something else can happen too. Our need to belong can move us towards self-justification, answering the question of why we should, in fact, belong, why we matter, and what we've done or what it is about us that earns our place at the table. This is certainly the path that I follow more often than I care to admit. It's funny the things insecurity will lead you to do. And so instead of basing our belongingness on our similarity to those who are around us, we base it instead on our resumes, on our grades, on our accomplishments, on our appearance, on our humor, on our intelligence, on our patents, on our home ownership status, on our artistic abilities. The list goes on and on. But here's the thing, though. As soon as we begin to base our worth and identity in something else, as we begin to allow gifting, talent, ability, possession, status to define us, it begins to have power over us. 
we fall victim to the self-induced endless cycle of always having to keep up. What happens if jobs get lost? Grades slip. Through the events of life, we lose the house. Let's take a look at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. They are subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. You see, it's these things, this striving, this surrounding ourselves with people who are like us in order to find some sort of identity. These things are the elemental spiritual forces of the world that Paul mentions. The aspects of the human condition and our broken world that predispose us to misguided attempts at meaning, yet ultimately lead us further and further away from what our souls long for. And so whether our need to belong manifests itself as pulling worth and identity from our accomplishments and unique individuality, or if it means surrounding ourselves with those similar to us and thereby distancing ourselves from those who are different from us, we find ourselves moving further and further towards slavery and further and further away from freedom. And in this way, we find ourselves in a similar position to the Galatians. See, Paul is writing to address life under the law as bondage because living up to the law means seeking self-justification through human works, through human achievements, through finding a way to be labeled right. We wind up boasting, and if we're not careful, we wind up creating our own versions of that first century Jewish prayer. We wind up jealous of what others have and we don't. We wind up divided from each other. A few weeks ago, Lisa mentioned a book called Disunity in Christ. It's a catchy title. The book's authored by Christina Cleveland, a PhD social psychologist. And in the book, she offers some insights that are really helpful. You see, this categorization thing isn't entirely all bad. She makes the distinction that there is an aspect of our human nature that in an attempt to make sense of the world, our brains, in an effort to simply have enough energy to make it through all the complex decisions of the day, creates categories for people to fall in so that we know simply what to expect of them. See, this kind of dividing and categorizing isn't inherently bad. It's a coping strategy. Where things go wrong, though, is when we begin to exert our own control over the way that we divide and categorize each other and then use that structure that we created to exert power and control over others to tell others whether they belong or not, to justify ourselves and give ourselves meaning and identity. We see here in Galatians that that's exactly what's happening. These Early Christians, in their best attempts, are trying to use the law and their faithfulness to its practices to glean their identity from 
and using that identity to create for themselves positions of social and religious power where to be right or to be accepted meant to be like them. Through the grace extended to them, through the cross of Christ, they had been set free to live free. But they, like Peter, were going back into bondage to the elemental spiritual forces of the day. And this leads us to a really uncomfortable question. For those of us who have believed into Jesus, who have moved from bondage to inheritance, who've been freely given what we've been desperately trying, yet continually failing to earn. Why do we go back to seeking to justify ourselves? At times, at the expense of others, and at the expense of the kind of community that Paul challenges the Galatians to live into in light of the gospel. I thought about how to say this all week, and this is what I've got. At the end of the day, whether it's pride or it's insecurity, although those two are often linked together, I think we just want concrete, tangible evidence that we're better than other people. We're still stuck in the mindset that for us to be in, someone else has to be out. For us to have value, someone else has to have less. And we get stuck on the endless loop of constantly competing with each other, of constantly looking to things and tasks and accomplishments to give us value, only further driving us away from each other and distancing us from the profound mystery that Christ came to give us what we could not earn or achieve. Because of that, because of the cross, in the body of Christ, we are all one. We are all sons. We have all received the inheritance of the Spirit. We all belong. And so for all the ways that we try to pull identity from things that were never meant to define us, and for all the ways that we divide each other in order to structure a world where we're included, let me lovingly say today that we need to knock it off. It has no business here. For all the ways that we have failed at this, though, there's good news. Let's continue in chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now remember that in Roman culture, 
lineage, power, possession, status was handed down in families to the eldest son. And in families where no son was born, there was a practice to adopt, usually a slave or an indentured servant. And in doing so, bestow upon them a life that otherwise would have been impossible. Now imagine being a slave or a woman in this church as this letter is being read aloud. In a society where you had no voice, where you had no status, where men literally prayed and thanked God that they were not you. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to hear that you are seen, that you are chosen, that you are adopted to sonship, that you have value and worth, and that you matter? This is the gospel. This is what Paul says God has done for all through Christ. We've been given a way out. Through Christ, we've been adopted into God's family. And because we are a part of the family, God has sent his spirit to live in us that we might never go through life alone, that we might know God in a close way. And through the power of the spirit of God with us and not of our own strength, we can be set free from the bondage of self-justification. We can be set free out of the bondage of division and into the freedom that comes with unity with God and with each other. That's what the research says too, by the way. The conclusion to Cleveland's book, Disunity in Christ, is that the way forward, the way towards unity, the way out of the categories and the divisions and all of the boxes is to find identity first in Christ. What better way to remind ourselves of that fact this morning than by sharing communion together? As Nick and the band come back to the stage, I'd like to invite you to pause and reflect. And when you're ready, approach the table from the side aisles, gather the elements, and head back to your seat through the center aisle. And before you take the elements, I'd like to ask you to consider these two questions. Are you living a life of freedom led by the Spirit or a life of bondage to self-justification? Are you free? Here's the second one. If you're someone who's believed into Jesus someone who by grace has been adopted into the family of God, but yet you still find yourself like Peter, like the Galatians, stuck in trying to earn what's been freely given. What is it that pulls you back? What are you seeking identity from? And would you consider the invitation of Christ this morning to come all you weary and heavy laden and find rest in him? May we find peace this morning, rest 
from the strain of effort. Rest from the pain of division. And comfort in the fact that Christ takes our brokenness and makes it beautiful. Would you come to the table?